Warning, this episode contains details involving sexual violence that may be upsetting for some listeners. And if there are young children around, you may want to listen to this episode at a later time. Listener discretion is advised. First and foremost, I want to thank you all so much for joining me for this remastered first episode of California Dreaming, Two Crime Tales from the Golden State. It means the world to me that you're taking a chance on this podcast, and I really, really hope to not disappoint. As a longtime podcast listener and fan, this is a place I never really imagined I would be, on the other side of the mic. It actually came to me in a dream one night, and I woke up thinking to myself, I can do this. I started running the idea by my family and friends, and of course, all the people I know on social media, and nobody really tried to stop me. Every single person that I told that I was going to start a podcast was 100% all in with me. And to all of my favorite people in the world, my family, friends, pod fans, pod hosts, everyone in between, and now my whole family at Orbital Jigsaw Network that offered me advice and words of wisdom, I owe all of you a tremendous thank you. If it weren't for all of your guidance and support, none of this would be happening. So, here I am. My name's Roseanne, and welcome to Episode 1 of California Dreaming, The Tale of Random Task. I'm sure almost all of you have heard of the movie series Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery. In case you haven't, actor Mike Myers plays Austin Powers, a James Bond-esque British spy who volunteers himself to be cryogenically frozen in 1967 so he may come face-to-face in the future with his arch-nemesis, Dr. Evil. Fast forward 30 years to 1997, and both Austin and Dr. Evil have been unfrozen, and they pick up from where their decades-long grudge had left off. One of Dr. Evil's henchmen is a character named Random Task, played by South Korean-born MMA fighter and actor Joseph Sun. Where Joe Sun would eventually go in real life, you will come to discover is much darker and much more sadistic than anything you would have ever seen in any Austin Powers movie. There is very little information that could be found about Joe Sun's early life. He was born November 22, 1970, in South Korea, and moved to California at a young age. Sun's acting career and his MMA career overlapped one another and spanned nearly a decade from 1993 until 2002. As a fighter, he was in the heavyweight division, standing at a stocky 5 foot 4 inches tall and weighing in at 236 pounds. He didn't seem to find much success in the world of MMA fighting, retiring with a record of 0 and 4 with three of his losses coming by way of submission and one by way of knockout. When he fought, he wore a leopard thong in makeup, which was a trademark of his that he was kind of known for. This might have been why his MMA career was slightly abbreviated. In addition to MMA, Sun enjoyed a short stint as a wrestler in Japan. However, that also quickly sputtered out as well. His career as a fighter can most definitely be filed under the blink-and-you'll-miss-it category. Sun 
finally hit the big time when he landed the role of random task in 1997's Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery, a James Bond villain knockoff of sorts. This role would be the peak of Sun's acting career, as, just like MMA fighting, Sun's fame as a Dr. Evil henchman in the Hollywood blockbuster was also fleeting. What nobody knew was that all this time, as Sun was wrestling, MMA fighting, and acting on the big screen, he was hiding a very, very dark past. Buried deep was a secret that he carried with him for 18 years. This is nothing like it's portrayed in the Bond movies, or even in the Bond parody movies for that matter, where justice is served quickly and efficiently, where the evildoers are thwarted and the hero always wins out in the end. Not this time. Not this evildoer. Not in real life. All too often, the wheels of justice turn painfully slow, as they did for a young Huntington Beach, California woman who, back in 1990, was brutally and maliciously attacked by Joe's son and an accomplice named Santiago Lopez Gatane. In January of 2016, the 48 Hours Live to Tell series featured an episode entitled, My Name is Victoria. Victoria is not her real name. However, the story of her encounter with Joe's son on that Christmas Eve night in 1990 is very real. Again, I must warn you that the following contains details of that brutal night that are very violent and graphic. But it serves to highlight the spirit of strength and survival in sheer will to live in the face of what can only be described as the stuff nightmares are made of. Victoria would describe her night that night that night that changed her life forever, as having a taste of what hell would be like. And this is a story that is going to take anyone who listens to this telling to that very dark, hellish place too. Victoria was 19 years old and a self-described rocker chick. That evening, she and her friends went out driving around, looking at Christmas lights. Just after midnight, she was driving into the complex where she lived, and she noticed her gate was open. The parking lot was dark, and her carport light was flickering and dim. She heard the sounds of another vehicle driving over the open gate's tracks. But in that moment, she thought nothing of it. Victoria had her little dog with her, so... She tucked her inside her jacket for the truck from the car to her apartment. It was a cold December night. Exiting her car, Victoria experienced that feeling. That feeling that we all get once in a while. That feeling we should probably make sure we pay attention to. The one that you feel like you're being watched. As she started walking, 
she saw a shadow flash across the dim light. She was suddenly and unexpectedly approached by a man who, at first, excused himself and then went on to explain that he was lost and that he was looking for the beach. Just as this was happening, a second man approached. As he did, Victoria noticed that he had a lit cigarette between his fingers, which he flicked. Victoria would watch the cigarette fly from his fingers and down to the ground, as if this moment were happening in slow motion. She thought to herself, watch where that lands. No sooner did that cigarette hit the ground was Victoria attacked by these two men, one from the front and one from the back, and a gun was put to her head. Whispering into her ear, one of the men told her that he was going to kill her so bad and that he was going to throw her off the cliffs and that he was going to mutilate her and throw her down to die. The only things that came to Victoria's mind were two things. One, she did not want to be a missing person. And two, she did not want to have a toe tag. With her wits about her, Victoria quickly came to understand that one of the men was Hispanic and the other one was a very intimidating Asian man who was clearly in charge. At the same time that the gun was put to her head and that she was being told that she was going to die, the Asian man gouged her in the eyes. In that moment, Victoria's dog, who had been tucked away in her jacket all this time, bit him on the wrist. Startled, the attackers recoiled back momentarily, long enough for Victoria to throw her dog into the bushes as she tried to run away, hoping that her dog would not be killed by these men. As she was running, she suddenly felt her hair being yanked back, hard. They wrestled her down to the ground, and they began savagely beating her on the pavement. The Asian man shoved his gun into Victoria's mouth, pulled her head up by her hair, and asked her what she sees. Looking up, Victoria saw the Hispanic man with his gun aimed towards the neighbor's windows. She was told in a whisper, into her ear, that the first person who hears her scream is going to have their head blown off, and she was going to watch it. The next thing Victoria heard was a loud smash, the sound of her head being slammed into the pavement. And the next thing she knew, she was being forced into a vehicle, driven off to God knows where. The Asian man began asking her where the cliffs were, demanding that she show him and direct him there. He told her that she could be the one to choose where she gets thrown down to die. Terrified at the thought of that happening, Victoria began to start thinking of her own funeral. She soon realized, however, that nobody was going to know that she was missing. Nobody was going to know where to find her. These men had guns and they had silencers on them. So when they shoot her, nobody's going to hear a thing. Victoria decided in that moment that if she was going to make it out alive, she was going to have to use her only weapon, her mind. She told the men that there were no cliffs nearby and that she didn't know where there were any. Exasperated, they decided to pull the car over into a neighborhood, and the Asian man demanded that she disrobe. 
He placed the gun against her temple and explained to her that he had no problem splattering her brains all over this car. He then proceeded to sexually assault Victoria. This would only be the beginning of this nightmare. This hellish nightmare. The Asian man told her that he needed a, quote, beach girl, unquote, as a Christmas present to himself. And when he was done, that he was going to toss her away and make sure the cops find her dead, just like that. Victoria told herself in her mind that she was not going to let him write her story. This was not going to be her ending. Thinking quickly, she told him that she had a baby and that he was going to let her go so she could go be with her son. In reality, she did not have any children. She did, however, have a photo of her friend's son in her wallet that she would claim to be her own. The Asian man asked her if she really thought that he was going to let her go after she'd seen his face and be able to identify him. Victoria reminded him that he had gouged her eyes out, that she was already wearing contacts and she was unable to see anything at all. Silence unexpectedly fell over the two men. Victoria wondered, did they believe that? Are they actually buying this? They just might be. Victoria was desperate to try anything to gain the sympathy of these two men, but the assault continued. They took their turns with her, committing the most vile acts, details I can't even bring myself to speak of them out loud. All the while, parked in a random neighborhood, held at gunpoint in the back of a car. And just when she thought things could not get any worse, they did. Not only did the Asian man, the man in charge, make things worse, he became more violent and more sadistic as the night wore on. He used his gun to assault Victoria, his loaded gun. Horrified, petrified, nearly broken, all Victoria could do was pray. She prayed to live for another second, and after that second, another, and then another. But eventually she reached a point where she would rather die than for this to continue any longer. Lost in that dreadfully low place, she was suddenly pulled from the car by her hair, down on the ground on all fours, naked, beaten, and nearly completely destroyed inside and out. The Asian man yelled at her to keep her head down. In that split-second moment, just as the Asian man was about to pull that trigger and end this night for Victoria forever, the Hispanic man tossed a jacket onto her. Agitated, the Asian man yelled back at his friend, asking him what he was doing. She's cold, he said. She's cold. Victoria knew his friend was done with this. She could see that he felt for her. Something had switched in him. She knew her prayers were being heard. And just like that, the Asian man 
and not so many nice words, wished Victoria Merry Christmas, and told her to run. And, just like that, as quickly as it all began, it was over. She ran. She ran for her life. A neighbor took her in and called 911. Police arrived, but before she was taken to the hospital, investigators took her back to where the assault had begun. They needed to look for evidence. Victoria needed to look for something very near and dear to her. Her little puppy that she had to toss into the bushes in the hopes that her life would at least be saved. Victoria desperately called her dog's name, praying that she hadn't killed her when she threw her aside. After a few minutes, Victoria heard the sounds of her precious dog's cries as she came running into her arms. Even the officers, moved nearly to tears at the sight of this reunion, could not be more elated that she had found her, especially after this long, harrowing night. At the hospital, doctors found that the extent of Victoria's injuries were unimaginable. She had red scratches across her eyes where they had been gouged by the attacker's nails. She had a semi-dislocated shoulder. Part of her jaw had been dislodged. Most of her teeth were knocked loose. She was experiencing hearing loss because of the head trauma she'd endured. But mostly... Victoria was in pain. She was in a tremendous amount of pain. As she would describe it, on a scale of 1 to 10, this was a 1,000. Victoria's younger sister, Veronica, was only 12 at the time when she found herself bearing witness to her stronger, older sister in this traumatic state in a way that no child should ever have to experience. For the first time in her short life, she was now going to have to be the one taking care of her sister, not the other way around. Their mom, their poor mom, simply could not cope with what had happened to her daughter. Veronica realized this almost immediately, that the task of nursing her big sister back from this ordeal was resting on her shoulders and her shoulders alone. She let Victoria know that she was going to do this. This was going to all be okay. She was going to make her clean again, and she was going to make her beautiful again. All the while, seeing her sister in this beaten and battered state was reminding her of what a scary movie was like. As she helped her sister into the shower, it was indeed very much like a horror movie murder scene in a shower except for two glaring differences. One, this was no movie. This was their reality, and this was happening to them. And two, Victoria was no victim. She was, and is, a survivor. If you live anywhere near a beach community, or even visited one, and you have had the chance to walk from the sand and into the water where the waves crash. You may have felt the sensation of something wrapping around your ankles. As the water and sea foam recede back, 
you can look down and you're likely going to find some seaweed wrapped around your legs. It's a sensation I've never really been able to get used to. It's always felt a little weird and a little scary, like it might be a jellyfish or an octopus or some other creature of the ocean. As Victoria stood in her shower, with her sister protectively close by helping her get through this, she felt the seaweed sensation around her ankles. She asked her sister what that was. She certainly wasn't wading in the breaking waves of the ocean. But her sister insisted, begged her to not look down. Just don't look down. As it turns out, as Veronica was washing and smoothing Victoria's hair out in the shower, it was falling out in chunks as she went. By the time she was finished, nearly half of Victoria's hair was at the bottom of the shower. It had been held in place by her own dried blood. This was Christmas Eve. This was the day a 12-year-old Veronica had to grow up. She was so brave, and she was so strong. She was everything a sister needed to be in that moment, as well as in the days, weeks, months, and years after the worst night of her sister's life. Don Howell, a now-retired detective with the Huntington Beach, California Police Department, was assigned to Victoria's case. Almost immediately, Detective Hal knew that this particular case was extremely troubling when one considers the level of violence of these two offenders. He was certain that these two were not finished, so everything else needed to be set aside. This case required his full attention. He began by putting some faces on these men. Detective Hal had Victoria sit down with the composite sketch artist, and she was able to help put together a drawing of each of the men to the best of her recollection. The composite drawings were sent out to the local news media and all over the local television stations. In any place, they were able to distribute and display the composites all over Orange County in the hopes that somebody might be able to recognize these men. Detectives also had these men's DNA profiles from evidence collected from Victoria's body and from her clothing. The DNA evidence yielded profiles of two men. And Detective Howell, he wanted these guys. There was something else Victoria had been able to provide detectives information about. She had heard these attackers talking about the Sons of Samoa, discussing this as though they were a part of this gang. They had even carved SOS into her skin. In case you haven't heard of the Sons of Samoa, and I hadn't either prior to researching this episode, they are a Crips-affiliated gang based in Long Beach, California, New Zealand, and Australia. The gang is known primarily for violent criminal activity including drug trafficking, weapons trafficking, extortion, prostitution, contract killing, and armed robbery. 
Detective Howell had really felt like these attackers had screwed up by discussing their gang affiliation and then allowing Victoria to live. He thought this was going to be a very strong lead to track down. He was bound and determined to apprehend these men. He was nearly 100% certain that he would find them and bring them to justice. He told Victoria that people like this, violent people like this who commit these heinous acts, such as what they had done to her, they slip up. They always do. And when they do, he promised her that he was going to be there to catch them. This attack forever changed Victoria's life. As you can imagine, nothing was ever going to be the same. That 19-year-old rocker chick Victoria was forever gone. Just about every aspect of who she was became who she used to be. Even though she lived through it, part of her died that night. This attack completely dominated every inch, every moment, every fiber of her existence. Surviving the attack was one thing. Surviving the aftermath was another. Victoria's best friend could see that this act of violence perpetrated against her had broken her spirit. Victoria was different. There were no more smiles. There was no more laughing. The happiness that used to fill Victoria had vanished. She may have lived through that night, but she came away with scars that ran deep. Scars that you can't really see. Ones that never really heal. Nodding off to sleep at night immediately jolted Victoria into a nightmare that she was back in that car again until she would wake up in a panic, screaming and shaking in fear. Every time she closed her eyes, she found herself back in that moment. So sleep, restful sleep, would elude her from then on. The triggers were everywhere and unforgiving. The breaking of a car, a car door slamming shut, the phone ringing, a knock at the door, the TV, the news, a passerby, a shadow. Everything caused Victoria to fly into a panic, thinking that they were coming back for her. The terror consumed her. As long as those men were someplace out there and not in jail, there was seemingly no way she was ever going to get past this fear plaguing her. Meanwhile, Victoria's case sat atop Detective Howell's pile of cases for a very long time. He felt there was enough information out there with the composites, the media coverage, the evidence provided by Victoria, that he was going to have these guys in jail within a few weeks. He followed that Sons of Samoa angle for about a year, but the lead was seemingly a dead end. There was just nothing there. There were no rumors going around on the streets. There was nothing uncovered by the gang unit officers that investigate street gang activity. There wasn't anybody the detective could find who matched the description Victoria gave of the attackers. 
Detective Howell finally concluded that there was no substance to the Sons of Samoa connection to this particular crime. He finally wrote that lead off as a red herring and rewound his investigation back to the beginning. He took a hard look at what he didn't have in his investigation in this case. He did not have a license plate for the vehicle driven by Victoria's attackers. He did not have the fingerprints of the suspects. There were no eyewitnesses aside from Victoria who spotted these men lingering around her complex that Christmas Eve night. To the detective, it felt as though he had a whole lot of nothing to work with in this case. A very disappointing place to be in such a seriously violent criminal investigation. With that being said, what did Detective Howell have? Well, he had the DNA. He had the most definitive piece of hard forensic evidence to nail these perpetrators to the wall. This was 1990, and DNA evidence as well as developments in scientific analysis were advancing by leaps and bounds by this time. DNA was an extremely popular way of identifying suspects and tying them to a crime. The detective knew that he had this immensely good evidence that he could link somebody to. But there simply weren't enough DNA profiles yet entered into the databank for there to be a connection made. It was a terribly frustrating place to be for Detective Howell, and especially for Victoria. Victoria's case happened to occur around the same time as the birth of the FBI's National DNA Database System, known as the Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS. The idea of establishing the database in the United States was first being discussed in 1989. By 1990, the FBI began a pilot DNA database program that included 14 state and local laboratories. In 1994, Congress passed the DNA Identification Act, which authorized the FBI to create a national DNA database of convicted offenders as well as separate databases for missing persons and forensic samples collected from crime scenes. The national level of CODIS, called NDIS, was implemented in 1998, and today, all 50 states, the District of Columbia, federal law enforcement, the Army laboratories, and Puerto Rico participate in the national sharing of DNA profiles. As of February of 2017, NDIS contains more than 12 million offender profiles, more than 2.5 million arrestee profiles, and more than 750,000 forensic profiles. Most of us already have some level of understanding of the DNA database systems and how they work. But for Victoria, this very system was going to change the trajectory of her case in a way that nobody ever saw coming. And for Victoria, subsequent to the savage attack that she had endured that night in 1990, days passed. Those days turned into weeks, and those weeks turned into months, and a very frustrated Detective Howell came to sound like a broken record every time he had to tell Victoria that he had nothing. 
He just had nothing. Nothing. And then months turned into years. And the detective's investigation into Victoria's case grew cold. He reached a point where he simply wasn't actively investigating it any longer. You can only keep running into dead ends so many times before. In case at the top of the pile, sadly, slips down to the bottom. And the fear was overwhelming for Victoria. Knowing that these two men were somewhere walking free was devastating. Her fear swelled to the point that she could no longer help but feel terrified for every single person on the street having to walk amongst these two men that had done that to her. They were out there, and nobody knew who they were. The only way Victoria was going to be able to escape these fears, these sleepless nights, the incessant panic and dread, the only way she was going to be able to find some kind of tranquility was to leave California, which she eventually did. She found her peace. She reconnected with an old romantic interest. He came to her, and he never left. And they went on to have twins. And life was good again. And then, suddenly, out of nowhere, 18 years after the worst night of her life, 18 long years later, Victoria finally received that phone call she'd been waiting for. Detective Howell on the other end of the line told her, We got him. We got that DNA hit. To confirm that Victoria could identify the suspect, the detective arranged to have a photo lineup sent over to her. She was able to pick him out immediately, with no doubt whatsoever. He was number five out of six in the lineup. She didn't even have to look at number six. She identified Joseph's son, and so did the DNA. As it turned out, his DNA popped up in the database, and it hit on Victoria's case. The reasons why Joe's son's DNA was in the national database was almost as ridiculous as his so-called wrestling career. He had had a vandalism conviction for kicking in the door of a former roommate's car, and as a part of his plea bargain, he had to agree to submit his DNA for the database. This is what finally led to the 2008 CODIS hit on Victoria's cold case. What stunned investigators even further is what else they found while investigating Sun's background. His acting role in the blockbuster we talked about at the beginning of this episode, Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. A movie, Victoria realized that she had sitting on a shelf of movies in her own home. Needless to say, she quickly made her way over to her movie collection, picked it up, and destroyed it. Detective Howell arrested Son and had him sit down for some questioning. Of course, he denied having any contact with Victoria. He denied any involvement in the crime. 
He denied ever having done anything like that to anyone ever. He claimed to have no idea what the detective was talking about. He even went so far as to describe what happened to Victoria as nasty. The detective knew son was lying to him. Ideally, he would like to get a confession, but sometimes a lie will do just fine. Son could sit there and deny his involvement until he was blue in the face. It made no difference to the detectives on the case. They had their DNA evidence against him. In October of 2008, nearly 18 years after the sadistic attack on Victoria, Joe's son was charged with multiple counts of kidnapping and rape. The case landed on the desk of a brand new prosecutor in Orange County, California Sexual Assault Unit, Deputy District Attorney Eric Scarborough. This was his first day on the job in the sexual assault unit. He was barely 30 minutes into his day when he pulled Joe's son's case. Deputy DA Scarborough was in disbelief at the details of the brutality Victoria had endured at the hands of son. He had to make sure that he got justice for her. This was going to be the case that he was going to put his heart and soul into. He just had to get justice. Anything less was unacceptable. But yet, there was still another matter to contend with in Victoria's case. That second suspect. He was still out there. He was very dangerous. And with son in custody ready for trial, finding that second perpetrator became the top priority. The detective and the deputy district attorney decided to re-release the composite sketch of the second suspect, along with Joe's son's picture to the media to see if they could get any fresh leads. It only took a couple of days when Detective Howell received an anonymous email from a man who said that he did not know anything about the crime, but he knew son in high school, and he knew one of son's friends who resembled the composite sketch. That friend was Santiago Gatain. After a few months of detective work, they were able to find out where he was living and tracked him down. Of course, the detectives were not going to be able to arrest Gatain based solely on some random anonymous email. They wanted to identify his DNA and compare it to the samples that they had from the night of Victoria's attack. Two Huntington Beach detectives set up surveillance outside of his apartment complex. Within 30 minutes, they spotted Gatain leaving his apartment drinking a bottle of Sunkissed soda. He took the last drink and threw it into a nearby dumpster. The detectives got out of the car, grabbed the bottle, bagged it, and took it with them straight to the lab. And it was a match. Santiago Catane had gone quietly on with his life after the night that he and son brutalized Victoria. His criminal history was relatively minimal considering his part in the story. He had moved out of the state of California. He seamlessly started a whole new life for himself. That night, neatly tucked away in his past. He had a wife, he had a couple of children. He was just like anyone else you might know in life, at work, your neighbor. 
he was just a regular guy living a regular life. But he was still that guy who did that to Victoria that night in 1990. He was arrested and also charged with kidnapping and rape. It was imperative that Detective Howell handle this case carefully. 18 years had passed. There is so much potential for things to go wrong with these older cases. Evidence gets lost. Memories fade. Witnesses pass away. He needed to make sure that he dotted all of his I's and crossed all of his T's while getting ready for this trial. Unfortunately, things went wrong for Detective Howell and Deputy DA Scarborough. Things went terribly wrong in the worst way possible. They had made a heart-wrenching discovery. It had taken so long to track these suspects down that the statute of limitations for the charges of rape and kidnapping had run out. It was a sickening realization. The very real possibility that the case against Sun and Gatain would have to be dismissed and these two men were going to walk out of the court and back into their lives without barely skipping a beat. The weekend came and Deputy DA Scarborough spent the entire time trying to figure out how he was going to charge these men. What could he do? What charges could he bring that would stick? After many, many hours of mulling this over, it finally came to him. He was going to charge them with torture. There was really no other way to describe the conduct of these two defendants anything other than torture, right? They did that to her that night. And because a torture charge carries the possibility of life imprisonment, there is no statute of limitations on the charge. This was going to be the way that he was going to get that justice that had eluded Victoria for 18 years. He was going to charge Sun and Katane with torture. Katane's attorney contacted Deputy DA Scarborough and said that his client wanted to plead guilty. After discussing this with Victoria, she agreed to the plea, but she wanted him to confess as to what he had done to her in open court. So he did. He confessed to everything, and in return, he received a sentence of 17 years in state prison. Sun, on the other hand, was not going to confess to anything. He was not going to take responsibility for what he'd done. He was going to go to trial. Sun's trial was set to take place in August of 2011. Victoria was key to the prosecution's case against him. She was going to have to be there. She was going to have to see him. Would she make eye contact with him? Would he do something weird like smirk or wink at her? She did not want to give him any chance to make her feel like he was doing something, anything to her, to make him feel like he was getting to her in any way. So she made a point to avoid eye contact. Victoria knew in the back of her mind that she had one goal. The one thing that she needed to do was to make sure that she got through this 
so she could put this monster away for good. As Victoria took the stand, she recounted the story of that night that Son and Katane attacked her. Her testimony was devastating. It was soul-crushing to hear her tell it. The jurors were visibly horrified at the details of the assault. Victoria felt in her heart and in her mind that these jurors needed to hear this. She needed to bring them back with her to that night in order to get a glimpse of what these men had done to her. Every juror was brought to tears, as was every single person seated in the gallery. Sun did not testify. He did, however, make a number of outbursts during the court proceedings, claiming that the things being said were lies, and these things were being made up. The jury heard Victoria's story, and they heard it loud and clear. After a few hours of deliberations, they returned with a verdict of guilty on the charge of torture. Sun was sentenced to seven years to life, which meant there was a chance that he was going to possibly be paroled one day, possibly even sooner than Gatan. But Joe's son's propensity for violence would not be stopped. One month into his sentence, his cellmate was found dead in their cell. He had been punched, kicked, and beaten to death by son. Under California law, if a person is serving a life sentence and that person kills somebody in prison, the case can be filed as a capital murder charge, making it a death penalty qualified case. If prosecutors were to seek the death penalty, this meant Victoria would have to come to testify at a sentencing hearing to again explain the crime that he had committed against her as part of the laundry list of reasons as why Sun should deserve the ultimate punishment. In the end, prosecutors decided not to seek the death penalty. They did not want to have to put Victoria through any more of this. The details of the murder charges against Sun are scant, and the information doesn't seem readily available online. From what I could see, Sun claimed that he was in fear for his safety at the time that he killed his cellmate and that he acted in self-defense. It doesn't really matter what you can and cannot find when it comes to Joe's son. More than enough has been said in the media, online, and during this episode. What does matter now is son is currently serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole. This is likely due to a plea or mandatory sentencing in his latest murder charge. Whatever the case, I'm certain I'm not alone when I say that I am ever so grateful that this person will never be given the freedom to walk amongst us ever again. Victoria's story of that night could easily take you to places worse than your scariest nightmares. The images of what happened to her that night are so difficult to think about, much less having to have lived through it. I have kept some of the details of what happened that night out of this telling of Victoria's story because, to me, Some things just don't need to be said. Some things I really can't bring myself to say. I'm having a hard time wiping my mind clear of the things I uncovered while researching this story. Some events resonate with people in different ways. Some people handle the horrific details better than others. 
I've never been through anything even remotely close to what happened to Victoria. But in researching this case, it has definitely caused several hours of sleep to escape me. But then I remember she lived. She made it through this. She endured. And she carried on. She married. She bore children. And then she came back and put those two men away for a very, very long time. She did that. And that is the aspect of this story that should stay with all of us. She survived. In case you are listening to this for the first time, this episode was originally released on June 27, 2017. I am re-recording this in an effort to improve the quality of the premiere episode of the podcast on this day, March 22nd, 2018. And in the nine months since this episode was released, there has been some news involving Joseph's son that I wanted to include in this re-recording. I mentioned in the original show that there wasn't much going on in the media regarding the October 2011 death of son's prison cellmate in that I really couldn't find much information about it in the news. And I speculated that perhaps he'd gone through the trial and everything was said and done. Well, the fact of the matter is, when I released the episode, Sun was actually about to stand trial for that killing. His trial started about three weeks after the premiere of California Dreaming. He was being charged with assault by a life prisoner with force causing death which is sort of like a murder charge, but specific to Sun's situation because he had already been serving a life sentence at the time that he killed his cellmate, a man named Michael Graham, who was serving a two-year sentence for failure to register as a sex offender. Sun's attorney had made the claim that he had acted in self-defense. The trial took about a week, and he was found guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter. The jury found, in part, that Michael Graham had some responsibility for the altercation that he got into with Sun, which ultimately led to his death. Sun was sentenced to an additional 27 years for that conviction. And, as the prosecutor in the case so aptly put it, Mr. Sun is a rapist, a torturer, and now a killer. And that brings us to a close of this very first episode of California Dreaming. Thank you so much for listening. I deeply appreciate it. You can follow me on Facebook. I have a discussion page there. On Twitter, at CaliforniaPod. And on Instagram, at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And I will list all that stuff in the show notes as usual. And you know the first time around when I did this, California Dreaming was not a part of the Orbital Jigsaw Network, but now, fortunately for me, it is. So you can visit California Dreaming at www.orbitaljigsaw.com along with a bunch of other fabulous shows that are part of our little family at Orbital Jigsaw. Thank you again so much, and until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>